Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts. Mark and AJ. Joining us live in studio tonight is Dr. Joshua Dines. Dr. Dines is an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in sports medicine and shoulder surgery. He's an assistant team physician for the New York Mets, an orthopedic sports medicine consultant for the New York Rangers, a consultant for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He previously was a doctor for the U.S. Davis Cup tennis team and currently serves as a consultant for USA Tennis. So thanks for making a house call for us tonight. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. It's great. Uh, You know, firstly, let's put it in sports context. You and your dad, David Dines, are sort of like Gordy and Mark Howe of the medical field, as both of you are, are kind of Hall of Famers in your own right. Uh, I'm just or, or you cu- can say the Griffies. <laughs> you know Keep me. I go talk. Well, you know I think I, I think <laughs> Gordy and Mark combined are Clear. better than Ken and Ken Jr. All right, I, I think Mark <laughs> on his own. But uh, you know, you want to go baseball? We we'll could go, go there. That's fine. Um, and I'm just curious, as your dad, Dr. David Dines, uh, for those people that might not know, uh, he's a world-renowned shoulder surgeon and um, he's former president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Society. He's been honored as one of the best doctors in America, in New York as well, since 1996. He's written numerous articles, uh, given hundreds of lectures nationally and internationally on the subject of sports medicine. He's one of the foremost authorities on shoulder orthoplasty in the world. He's performed thousands of shoulder replacements, including live surgery to teach other orthopedic surgeons in the U.S. and abroad. So why choose to enter the same field? I have to imagine that that comes with an awful lot of pressure. Why not a, a totally different specialty altogether? That's a great question. I mean, it's, it's always a double-edged sword for the people you mentioned. And I, I don't think we've ever been put in the same sentence as the Griffies in the house. So that's, <laughs> uh, I don't know how much you guys have been drinking before I got here. But, uh, but we, it appreciate we, yeah, we appreciate it nonetheless. Um, no, it's, it's something I was exposed to. So, uh, you know, I saw his love for what he did. Uh, saw the opportunities that provided him to teach and travel and, and work with professional athletes, and that was something that I always liked. Sports was something I always loved. So once I decided to go into medicine, uh, just kind of the field of orthopedic surgery and sports medicine in general, something I gravitated towards. And you know, you're right. He's been uh, you know, tremendously successful, which there's a lot to live up to. But it also does you know help open some doors. So it, it, you know, there's always pluses and minuses. I think to that point, you just have to kind of do what you like and, and hope it works out. You know, aside from your dad and the knowledge you got from him, you also did a sports medicine fellowship in Los Angeles with Dr. Frank Job, the person who invented Tommy John surgery. What was that like? Uh, that was amazing. He, you know, he's clearly that that surgery is you know kind of as famous as any surgery that we do as orthopedic surgeons, uh, and he was unbelievable. So I was there kind of his last year practicing. So I did one of the last Tommy John surgeries that he'd ever done, you know, with him, which is you know kind of amazing. It's you know doesn't mean much to other people, but for an orthopedic surgeon in sports medicine, yeah. that's you know, that's he's he's the ultimate of the Hall of Famers. Um, so that was you know a, a great you know teaching opportunity experience, and, and everybody else who's at the Curl and Job Clinic, who's become famous in their own right, following Dr. Job's footsteps, has made it for an outstanding experience. Now I have a relative who served as a team doctor in the NHL. Can you describe to our audience what the process is like to become a team physician? Um, you know, I think part of the difficulty is there's no set, you know, sort of checklist that you do these five things and then you end up as a team doctor. I think it's it's having a passion for the sports. Um, it's you know doing a lot of research. First and foremost, treating patients well and, and getting good outcomes, um, but also you know, being a thought leader in the field, doing research. 
and being curious, you know, wanting to get improve the results of, of the outcomes in, in surgeries and professional athletes. Um, and you also, I think, have to, you know, have a love for the game and the sports because it's, it's a money-losing opportunity. I mean, it's, it's lots of hours kind of when work ends that you're then going to cover the game and, you know, become sort of a, a full-time, part-time job. Um, so I think, you know, plenty of people don't have the desire to do that and want to do other things, which is, you know, makes a ton of sense uh, to me. But, it, again, I love sports. I love baseball. I love hockey. So it, uh, I'm going to 10 or 20 hockey games a year anyway. If I get, and get to take care of the players also, then it, it just becomes an added benefit. You know, when my wife and then later my son blew their knee out, we're looking at ACL surgery, we're looking, who's the doctor to do the surgery? It's okay. They ended up being done by Elliot Hirschman, who's the f- surgeon for the Jets. Sure, great guy. Terrific doctor, great guy, loved him, did a great job. And we thought, okay, you know, you go to a guy who does team medicine. You go and go as an expert in the field. Now you take a look at all the criticism, especially in the NFL, not, not so much in the other sports, saying, you know, really knocking team doctors, there's shills, they only help the, the, you know, the owners and not the players. How do you reckon, why do you think it's become an issue more in the NFL than any other sport? Um. I mean, honestly, I think your point is well made, except that I, I would also, look, we see from the Mets, you know, we're in, get, yeah. you know, so it's, I think it's baseball. I think, you know, whatever team you are, you know, we get beaten up in the press a lot. Um, and, you know, when things are going well, they don't, you know, they don't notice. But when there's, you know, all of a sudden they're not playing well or the, the results are not what you'd expect, you look at everything, whether it's defense like you guys are talking about or, or injuries. Um, so I think it's, you know, we're definitely under a microscope. Uh, and, and, you know, some of the, I don't think the, you know, the criticisms are valid because really as the doctors, you, you, you know, you kind of separate yourself. You don't, as I said, th- these are money losing opportunities. Um, you know, you're not getting, we're not getting paid Ken Griffey money to be the team doctor. You're doing, it's almost yeah. for the love of the game. And at the end of the day, you're, you know, first and foremost, you're a doctor. We want the players to get better and, you know, do the right thing for the player. And I think sometimes what gets lost in, in the press or, you know, amongst the fans is that, you know, things take longer to happen or we, we can't predict the future. We don't know it's going to be four weeks or six weeks, but we, you know, we try our best. Kitch, you just tuned in. We're talking with New York Mets assistant team physician Dr. Joshua Dines here live in studio on WLIE 540 AM Sports Talk New York. We mentioned in the open the various positions you have held or or hold. Assistant team physician for the Mets, orthopedic sports medicine consultant for the Rangers, consultant for the Los Angeles Dodgers, former doctor for the U.S. Uh, Davis Cup tennis team, several different positions in very different sports. How do those roles differ from sports to sports, and do tennis, hockey, and baseball have sports-specific injuries? Yeah, I mean, great. It's, you're right. There's such a variety. Each sport is different into itself. Um, tennis is an individual sport, a lot, especially at the top level when you talk about the, the Roger Federer's, the Andy Roddick's, uh, John Isner's. Those guys, you know, they kind of travel with their own sort of medical team, um, and, and, you know, in terms of physical therapists, trainers, uh, and then they kind of call on the doctor if they need it, and we're there for them. Whereas the baseball team, you're there every day. Uh, it's you know 25 guys. There's you know, the minor leagues, so it's a much longer season. Uh, it's a lot of sort of repetitive overuse injuries that we see in baseball, and it's a lot of times just kind of getting these guys through the season. You know, maybe being a little more preemptive that you know, preventing injuries uh, if possible, because you know that it's a 162 game season. Hockey is the other end of the spectrum where to, uh, you know, I tap my cap to these guys because they're they're the toughest individuals you know I've ever met, and you can't keep them off the ice. Um, so there, it's it's much more traumatic, um, and the injuries that keep them off the ice are much more severe than, than something, you know, from a baseball or tennis player where you want to protect them for the whole season and you'll, you know, 
probably keep them out to protect them a little more. Yeah, these guys so, are skiing with broken ankles. Yeah, yeah they're, it's, they're, they go yeah. out there. It's it's, it is amazing what you see. Yeah, I, I was, it was, I was kind of flabbergasted when I first walked into the Rangers locker room, and you see just how tough these guys are. You know, you talk about injuries, and especially with the new Met, young Met pitchers, you see injuries we haven't heard about before. You see thoracic outlet syndrome, torn labrums. Are there new injuries that are cropping up, and why? Or are they just giving different terminology people had these all along, now they're getting diagnosed better? Um, you know, just across baseball, you know, thoracic outlet syndrome is not new. Uh, there's there's a, a surgeon in St. Louis who's very famous who's treated a lot of these players. Um, I think they they sort of seem new to to the uh, certain region or, or area when when a player on that team comes down with that injury. So now, to be fair, thoracic outlet is is definitely on the less common diagnoses, yeah. but it's been in baseball for years, and, and plenty of players have been treated for it, just not of the Mets. Um, labral tears are very common. I think. Core injuries are very common, and there we've gotten a little more sophisticated about making the diagnoses. So now we're seeing more oblique injuries where it used to be sort of lumped into just kind of a, a core injury, and now we've gotten a little more specific differentiating between maybe stress fractures of the ribs versus oblique injuries and such. But I think these injuries have always been there. Our diagnostic skills and tests have gotten more sophisticated, especially MRI. So maybe we are being a little more uh, exact in our, our terminology. But I think it really is, comes down to what's affecting your team that you pay attention to and you think that it's new. You know, it's interesting that you brought that up. So let's go back before we heard of those three most famous words in baseball, Tommy John surgery. Uh, why were guys like Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson, Juan Marichal, Nolan Ryan able to stay relatively healthy with workloads way beyond what's going on with today's pitchers? I remember Tom Seaver telling me that the Mets back in the day actually did have pitch counts. His uh, was 135. Kuzman's was 145. Nolan Ryan's was 150. So why were guys with all... And, and all those guys that I mentioned all had different body types, all had very different pitching uh, motions. And very long careers. And very long careers, very little injury. Why are we seeing such a rash of injuries now? You know, it's obviously an epidemic, more so than it ever was back in the 60s and 70s. It's, uh, it's, multi, I mean, it's a great question. I think it's multifactorial. I mean, you mentioned, you know, five freaks, and I mean that in a good way. I mean, you know, yeah. these are, you know, so for every one of those examples, there's 20 guys who blew out their arm back in that day and age, and they just kind of fell off the radar, and you didn't pay attention to them. I think, you know, we are better at diagnosing these injuries. You know, with, with MRI, we can be more sophisticated. And I think one of the main issues is, you know, the, the contract, the money that these guys are playing for now, you protect your investment. So if, you, if you're signing these guys to $200 million contracts, you're going to sit them out with these injuries that people may have pitched through before, you didn't label, and you just they maybe missed a start, but now you're going to be a lot more proactive and, and even shut them down for the rest of a season or be more strict about enforcing your pitch counts because just the investment is that much greater. I'm, going, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, okay. I mean, how, how much stress? There's the stress of pitching in the games, and they do all the between starts side sessions, whatever, how much stress does that put on, add to what they do, or how does that help them get through the next start and give them more ability to stay and not get hurt? Yeah, I think, I think everything's a balancing act. It's like working out in general. You've got to, as long as there's kind of a, a you know, sort of a well-designed program, and to your point, each, each person is different. Certain body types are different. Some people can throw harder for, for more innings and more throws don't affect them. Other people less so, but I think you do need to keep your arm kind of in shape uh, and really throw it, you know, kind of in terms of pitching, one of the few ways to keep it in shape because it's such a, an abnormal motion relative to everything else we do in, the, in life is really throwing is the only way to kind of keep that in shape. It's interesting you mentioned that because I, I'm just wondering, as a team physician, all right, 
obviously there are different components. And let's take the Mets, for instance. You have Ray Ramirez, who's their trainer. You have uh, Michael Burowitz, who was brought in as a, a conditioning consultant. Uh, some players voluntarily went through the Burowitz program. Some did not. Um, and each guy trains on their own different way. At the end of the season, going into the offseason, do you guys meet as a group and try and set like an off-season regimen for these guys? And sometimes I would imagine they might be in conflict. I, you, you take a look at what uh, Johan Cespedes did in the off-season. I mean, he really developed his lower body, his quads, much more than he ever did. And he's been having leg problems. I don't know if that's a correlation whatsoever. But do you guys sit together and try to map out some strategies? Sure. I mean, I, I can't speak about specific med injuries in particular, but you know, clearly we want to get. We, if our goal is to have you know zero injuries, which getting back to a point I made before, these are they're playing 162 games in 180 days, taking out the playoffs and preseason. I mean, it's just a ton of. Which know, there won't be any right, this year. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. no. But the last couple of years they have, so that right. makes for longer seasons and more just sort of instances to potentially get hurt. So part of it is just, you know, we, we, we'd like to have a zero incidence of injury. That's never going to happen in baseball or any sport or even walking across the street, people trip. But um, we do look at, you know, what, what's working, what's not working. I mean, Ray does an outstanding job. He's one of the best in the, in the game. Um, and you know, he gets booed sometimes, which is, which is crazy that they even know him because he does such a great <laughs> job. But, uh, you know, we definitely, look, every, you know, the best way to kind of, hopefully get better is to look at your past results and be critical of them and see what we can do. And, and to your point, I think every player is a little different. Some people need to work out in the offseason. Some people probably just want to shut them down and let them rest. So I think it's looked at system-wide, but also on an individual basis. So how active are you in the offseason versus during the season? It's, well, it's much more, you know, the, the, the training staff jokes that it's a season without games because it's really, it never ends. Um, and those off seasons, especially when you make the playoffs and you go deep, it's gotten a lot shorter. And then pitchers and catchers report kind of, you know, beginning middle of February. So we're definitely busier on an everyday basis during the season. But you're looking at off season signings, you're reviewing charts, um, you know, teams are making trades, you're reviewing, you know, potential players that are coming over, looking at their medical history. So there's stuff always going on, but it's definitely busier during the season. So what, do you, what do you look for when there's a proposed trade? I'm thinking about one that the Mets backed out of a couple of years ago <laughs> because of a bad medical report. When they say, we're looking to trade for this guy, and here's his medical chart, what do you look for to say, make the deal, or oh, i got some problems with this, with this player? Um, I mean, you know, again, most of these people, if they've been in the league for a long time, you're going to have some history of injuries. And, and, you know, it really just gets down to the severity of it. You know, things that are each position is a little different. Um, you know, a pitcher, a non-throwing arm and an outfielder is going to be a lot less worrisome than, a, you know, an elbow and shoulder injury. Somebody who's kind of been, you know, had a, an elbow, coming off an elbow injury. They missed a lot of starts the previous year. Those are going to be, red, red, miss, you know, kind of raise red flags. So I think a lot of it is kind of we know injuries are going to exist, but how have they responded to those? And, and also, you know, on a much more sophisticated level, some injuries are much you know more worrisome to me than others. You know, here's something that might sound like a very strange question, but you, you see a lot of these different talk shows, CNN, Larry King has people on, and certain diseases, syndromes, are linked to the way we now mass-produce our foods with the hormones. Has there been a study to see what those hormones in our foods have done to muscle tissue, and has there, is there any difference in an athlete from the 60s to now based on just the, the types of foods we eat and, and 
just our environment around us in particular? Yeah, it's a great, I mean, it's a great question. I watched Forks Over Knives last night, so uh, I'm vegan for the last 12 hours. But um, I'll fall off the <laughs> wagon soon. Wow, that, I'll, fall off, yeah. I'll fall off the wagon soon. But, um, but look, I think we're much more sophisticated about nutrition, training, all these things. So players today are just, you know, these guys are you know, in much better shape than they used to be. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the study, you know, to specifically answer your question. But we know things like vitamin D levels. You know, if they're low, you're going to be at a higher risk for muscle injuries, you know, fractures, all sorts of things. So I think we are doing a better job. You know, the NFL has had a few studies on that. Just being more sophisticated on checking what we can check to make sure that you're at least giving yourself the best chance to perform as well as you can. And there are guys in the NFL who are vegan, and I think Arian Foster, um, you know, it does well. And there are people who eat probably steak at every meal, and, and they do great also. Well, so Prince Fielder was the, uh, the big example <laughs> of somebody who went vegan, did badly, and went back to eating steak no. about three months no, later. No, no. Yeah. You got that wrong. I think Prince Fielder ate a vegan. <laughs> I think that's what it was. I think that was the problem. Um, 2012, you co-wrote a book called Sports Medicine of Baseball. Other authors included Dr. David Alchek and Dr. James Andrew to complete pretty much the holy trinity in the field. Uh, the book should be required reading for me, uh, every youth baseball coach out there. Um, it's not only about treating players after an injury. It's also about how to get them ready to play and prevent those injuries from occurring. Topics such as different training regimens for off-season versus in-season tailor-made throwing programs for relievers and starters for baseball players at all levels. What percentage of baseball injuries that we're seeing at the youth level can be prevented? That's, I mean, that's a whole you know, kind of separate talk show because that's, yeah. that's one of the biggest problems that I see in practice. You know, I, I grew up on Long Island. You'd play baseball in the spring, maybe a little in the summer. You'd play soccer or football in the fall, hockey or basketball in the winter. And you just, by the nature of the sports you played, you'd have a kind of a built-in rest for your arm. And now I see kids that are playing all year. They've got fall ball. They're on multiple travel teams. They're working with several pitching coaches. Everybody's so concerned about the radar gun and throwing harder. And this becomes kind of the perfect recipe for blowing out your elbow. So I think we're seeing these injuries at a much younger age, which is really the problem. And going forward, if you're tearing your UCL at, as a 15, 16, or 17-year-old, you know, then it's happening again when you're in college or you know, early minor leagues. So now they've had two, and that you know, that's, that's doesn't bode well for the kind of future of their arms. You know, let's talk about that again, because you talk about Tommy John surgery and doing that. And I came across a, an article, I guess you were quoted in, they talk about an alternative now, to Tommy John, which is stem cell treatment. And I guess that's what Tanaka did from the Yankees. And is that really what Lugo basically did, or he just did rest with it? Okay. I'm just saying, in terms of that, what is that treatment about, and why is that so promising as something that's an alternative to Tommy John surgery, especially repetitive surgery? Well, I think, you know, kind of the stem cells and, and PRP, we're using it a lot. It kind of falls under the whole topic of orthobiologics and using kind of biologics to improve our outcomes or, or prevent injury um, or speed up the recovery from injury. And I think, look, the top, top, we're taking a step back from Tommy John surgery, it's a 12 to 15 month recovery at the highest level. So clearly if you can avoid that, that's gonna be better for the athlete um, and for the surgeon. We, you know, like I'm a surgeon, I like to operate, but if we can get people better without that, that's better. And there are people who you know, have partial tears or people that we've tried, we're gonna to try to treat conservatively with physical therapy, rest, improving their, their shoulder range of motion, improving their strength in their core, all these things that may affect or take some stress off the elbow. And stem cells, PRP are, are kind of adjuncts to that therapy. So. It's not, it's definitely new and we've had decent results with it, but the indications are limited. You know, it doesn't apply to everybody. I explain to parents all the time, or players for that matter, if the ligament's torn in half, 
stem cells, PRP, these things are not going to make it magically reattach. But sometimes you get, catch them a little earlier where they've got partial tears or sprains, and maybe you can prevent it from tearing more or speed up the recovery, then I think there becomes kind of you know, a, a nice potential for it. We're talking with orthopedic sports medicine consultant for the New York Rangers, Dr. Joshua Dines. Uh, elbow injuries among pitchers are growing at an alarming rate. I know that the Hospital for Special Surgery, obviously a little plug here, nice. wearing we my uh, special yeah. surgery T-shirt uh, from Emmett's uh, Fantasy Camp, where they were needed a lot <laughs> in the weeks I've been down there. Um, so the elbow surgeries uh, are growing at an alarming rate. I know that the Hospital for Special Surgery set out to find a relationship between elbow varus torque and the following variables, uh, variables, arm slot, arm speed, shoulder rotation. You were involved with that study that looked at 81 professional pitchers, either in the majors or minors, who took 81,999. That, I'm kind of, why not... One more for the 82,000. I was kind of surprised at that. Uh, while wearing a modus baseball sleeve, um, there were a combination of throws that were evaluated in real settings, such as structured long tosses, live gameplay, as opposed to a laboratory, like previous studies had done. This was the largest analysis of throwing biomechanics to date. When you set out to do a study like that, where there are so many variables, body types, delivery, mechanics of each other, players, how difficult is it to get an accurate baseline, and what did the study find? So, I mean, you, you raise a great point. We, I, and I, full disclosure, I'm a consultant for the company, but it's um, it's the Modus Global Sleeve, and the the benefit of it is, you know, a lot of these things. To, to we want to study mechanics better. We want to know kind of the stresses across the elbow and the shoulder when people are throwing. And a lot of it's been done in labs, kind of in the basement of labs with motion capture systems, which is kind of artificial. So we just. You know, they come up with a great way to kind of track these throws, and I describe it to kind of patients and players as an odometer for your elbow. So you can wear it during every throw, and that's how the number, you know, we approached 82,000 because we just got these players to wear it, and it basically just tracked every throw. And your question is great because this was the first study. It really is, you know, just to kind of see what it can capture, and now we're getting a lot more sophisticated about applying it to different people with the goal being, you know, being able to really monitor their acute workload, their chronic workload, check the ratios, and also kind of tailor-made throwing programs or tailored throwing programs for different individuals. A 15-year-old who weighs 120 pounds is going to have a different throwing program or be able to tolerate less than Noah Syndergaard, for that matter. So I think when we use these kind of just throwing programs out of conventional wisdom, because that's what's been done for 30 years, um, I think we're better than that now. Our technology is better. Our, our knowledge base is better. So we really want to kind of step up our game in that sense. You talk about studies you've done. You actually published a number of papers, peer-reviewed. How important is it to you to have studies and publish? And what does that say to the average consumer? You know, I've got a doctor who's published out of papers in this subject. I think that you, they should look for that or at least appreciate it because it, hopefully it means that you're kind of thoughtful about it. So, um, you know, we, we, could, we do very well as orthopedic surgeons in terms of outcomes now. We've gotten better than, you know, our, our surgeries are... They're, they're more minimally invasive, so our techniques have improved. But I think, you know, you, don't want, you never want to be complacent. We want our results to be perfect, and we're not there yet. So I think doing research, seeing what works, what doesn't work, who's going to do well, really, I think, as it goes forward over the next 10 or 20 years, kind of realizing that the surgery that might work for me or you might not work for you and, and you know, tailoring different procedures to different patients based on variables that we know, you know, are going to affect the outcomes in, a, in, in certain ways. Uh, what, what's your thoughts now? There, there are some high school students that are actually going for elective Tommy John surgery so when they make it to college or the pros they've already gone through it and and they think that supposedly they've strengthened their arm and their shoulder and it'll help their draftability because they've already had the right. surgery there'll be one less year out of the I mean this is becoming a problem is it not uh, it's crazy I mean I, I would blame the doctors and I you know I usually I'm very protective of other doctors but anybody who does that is crazy I mean that's and that I can say kind of and I you know unilaterally um, 
you never want to subject your kid to elective surgery to potentially throw harder when it's a year recovery. The results are not perfect. You know, I, I think what, what's gotten lost in the Tommy John surgery is that, you know, the outcomes are not perfect. We've definitely gotten better, but you know, they're probably 85, 90% of people getting back to their previous level of play for at least one year, but it's a year recovery. So trading one year for another, you know, that alone is not a great trade. But when you start doing it on younger kids, you know, they worry, they, they think they'll throw harder. Um, the real issue is during that 12-month recovery, if patients do come back throwing harder, it's because they're using this time wisely. They're working on their core, they're working on their mechanics, they're working on their shoulder strength, things that may get neglected when you're not injured that you have to focus on because you've got nothing else to do during the recovery. So. And the other issue is a lot of times you're sort of trending down on the radar gun before it gets injured because it's often an acute on chronic thing where it, there's a little bit of injury, a little bit of injury, and then one throw becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back. But you were trending down to begin with. So when you use this time to you know, recover, you may get back to where you were before, but you almost convince yourself that you're throwing harder. But you know, my, my short answer to that is that it's crazy. You know, in the beauty of doing this show for so many years, we've had so many guests. Right. And in my back of my mind, I remember an interview we did with Mike Marshall. Okay, the the pitcher right. and he, a little out there in some of his ideas, but a lot intelligent out there, guy, PhD, doc, right? You know. Dr. Mike Marshall, yeah. we yeah. shouldn't shortchange him. And he um, has been trying to get a job as a pitching coach for years, and basically changed the pitching because he he claims that the torque that's put on the elbow, the strain that's put on the shoulder, is all due to an unnatural motion that the the shoulder and elbow is not our body is not right. made to do. And he came up with a, a different type of, of delivery for the pitches. Has there been any study as far as that? Could there be a slight change in the way we rotate and open up when you throw a pitch to, to try and protect the asset? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, to your point, you, look, you, you mentioned five guys before who threw 145 right. pitches to start and, and didn't have those problems. So clearly there are certain things that can be protective of it. Um, and I, I've met other pitching coaches you know, who have similar ideas, and it makes sense. A lot of times the problem, though, is it's very e you know, easy to say that in a lab this puts less stress on it. If you get somebody when they're seven or eight or nine, it's easy to change their throwing mechanics. You can't do that to somebody who's, you know, in the major leagues or even in the minors for that matter because they've built up, you know, their muscles to kind of compensate or, or sort of resist the stresses in the throwing motion. So when you change your arm slot or change your motion, if it's drastic, you know, there may be less stress at the elbow. But a lot of things you've worked so hard to kind of build up to resist the stresses don't work in that sort of mode. The word he used was, if I remember correctly, this is about 10 years ago, it was pronate. Right, was that? So, yeah. I, I believe something his about his piece about kinesiology was that right. There? As a professor yeah. of kinesiology, yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of work to be done. I think I think kind of this modus leave sort of you know speaks to that. We can sort of define things better. And and you're right. You know, little tweaks may take a lot of stress off. So I don't think you have to kind of revamp and, and reteach people how to throw. But little tweaks may make a big difference. You know, one of the things they used to say with kids, with little league pitchers, and Mark coached little league, and I help when the kids were a little bit older, uh, was don't don't throw a curveball until they're a certain age. Don't throw until they're 12 or 13 or 15. And now it seems like the emphasis is not, you know, hit what do you hit on the gun, throwing fast. So what advice do you have for little league coaches and how do they coach kids who want to be pitchers, what to do and what not to do? And carry that a step further, AJ and I were involved in a game where AJ would keep track of at both my pitcher and the opposing team's pitcher. And yeah. there was one game yeah. where the opposing pitcher was up to 135 pitches, and I went to the umpire and, and like I said, 15, I'll forfeit the game because kid. this, yeah. he's, you know, yeah. Should pitchers, ha kids, have pitch limits, and that should be should that be in instituted across the board in all leagues? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, again, nobody would, you know, nobody, I, and that's a tough point to argue that they shouldn't because it's just as we've said multiple times throughout the conversation, it, throwing is not a normal motion. So the more pitches you throw, the more stress it puts on the elbow. Um, so 
it's not an ideal thing. And I think, you know, what you did was great. And, you know, pitch counts are, are really important. A lot of the times, so though, even when coaches mean well, you know, they, they, it gets, you know, I also said before, people are multiple teams now. They're going to showcases. Yeah. So yeah, that becomes know. a big problem where you're yeah. doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing, and yet Coach C is doing something else. Or even everybody's kind of following the rules, not realizing that they're, they're on multiple different teams and making a lot of throws. Uh, you know, even if at home. If you had one thing to get rid of, though, would you get rid of for high school kids, let's say, or for junior high kids, get rid of the gun? I mean, oh, every, absolutely, yeah. Equipment is so easy to get now. Sophisticated equipment is so cheap. You can get it all on your phone. Right. What no, would you get rid of? I, I think getting rid of the Raider gun, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, now, you know, Greg Maddox probably wouldn't be drafted now. Right. And, right. and everybody just worries about throwing harder and harder. And it's just, you know, Jeff Passan wrote a great book called The Fastball. And just, you know, the, the obsession with throwing hard and, and hitting certain numbers on the gun, I think, you know, is, is yeah. one of the bigger culprits in terms of injury. We saw what happened to the Chicago. Cubs. That that whole staff was pitching to the gun, and yeah. you know they all every single one blew out their arm. Uh, before you go, lastly, what have been the major differences since you got into the field to now, and what do you see the future holding? So I've been doing this for about ten you know ten years in practice, um, and you know, over that time, again, just the technology that's available to us is game changing. Uh, just being able to sort of figure out why these injuries are happening, we're getting a better understanding. But I think. Going forward, I mentioned it before the, the orthobiologics, that that sort of umbrella of terms to represent PRP stem cells, that's really going to be, I think, where you know, kind of medicine shifts, and we'll be much more uh, astute about how to use it, where to use it, who's going to respond well to it, um, in what situations, and I think that's going to sort of tailor-made, sort of indiv- more individualized medicine. Great stuff. We really appreciate it. It's not every day you can get a doctor to make a house call on Long Island, let alone come from the Hamptons to, to right. beautiful Riverhead. Right. Uh, yeah. That's it's some... Ronkonkoma. Uh, Ronkonkoma. That's right. Lake get your R's great. Beautiful Lake Ronkonkoma. Exactly. Right. Don't drive by the uh, so, lake on your way home. No, it sounds like water's nice. Yeah. I like water not, views. Not around no. here. All right.